The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Last night, Colonel Hoffman was arrested by Gestapo, and he is being held here for treason. Treason? Hugo Hoffman's a national hero. <laughs> the Gestapo's got to be kidding. Why is he being held here? The Führer doesn't want the people to know that our national hero is a traitor, but he's going to get a fair trial. When? Tomorrow morning, there is a court-martial followed by the execution. <laughs> Some fair trial. What kind of evidence have they got? I know nothing. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, November 29th, 2018. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Whenever I bring up the story of Tommy Robinson in Britain to most of my friends and acquaintances outside of my own media and social media environment, it's remarkable how many blank stares I get. And yet it's the kind of story that once galvanized the mainstream media, one that would garner the sympathy of the public, but today is the kind of story that the mainstream media seems to be pushing under the carpet or rewriting with a different narrative. And someone who has his own narrative on the Tommy Robinson story is Andrew Lawton, who joins us in studio today. Welcome, Andrew. Good to be back. We'll begin our conversation right after we remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and, of course, all of our archived broadcasts. And Andrew, of course, Londoners certainly know you as a broadcaster, columnist, and now you're a fellow of the True North Initiative, and you recently visited England to cover the whole Tommy Robinson situation when there was a case going on uh, before the courts. We're we're dying to hear this story and what, what you saw, because we're obviously not hearing it all in our papers here or in our news media. No, and it's interesting that you mentioned that you expected this type of case to galvanize the media. I would disagree slightly with your conclusion, because I think it has galvanized the media against against him. (laughs) Yes, it's galvanized them in, in a really bad way, because they have now taken all of the attention that they should be putting towards issues with immigration, the migrant rape gangs that are popping up around Europe and around the UK, and they are instead directing their ire to Tommy Robinson, this guy who is like, to most people, that quintessential English rugby hooligan, just that guy from a working class town. He's not, you know, partying it up with the A-listers. He's not hobnobbing with the elite. He's an average guy who, like so many other people in the UK especially, could not bear to see what was happening to the town that he knew and and loved. And he said, "I, I have to start speaking up about this. And when you had girls that started to go missing, girls as young as 12, 13 years old, that were being abducted by these these rape and, and grooming gangs. And this is not conspiracy, by the way. These are, are proven. These have documented. Now there are charges and convictions against the people responsible. But for the longest time, the media had no interest in covering it. And Tommy Robinson may be a bit rough around the edges, but he was the one that was actually drawing attention to it when nobody else was. 
And in many respects, it's because of him that people have even had these discussions about what's been happening. And the challenge is that he got stuck by the state for daring to cover this. So just to try to condense as much of the backstory as I can here, he was in Canterbury in the UK when one of these trials was going on, and he decided he was going to to film it. He was going to stream what was going on, and in the process found himself in contempt of court, because you can't film in courtrooms in the UK, very similar to courtrooms in, in Canada and, and even much of the United States. And he accepted it. He said he didn't know. He didn't mean to break the law. He thought it was completely fine, and there was no issue given. Uh, that was not rectified with his conversations with the judge. So he was given a a suspended sentence, which means, okay, don't act up for the next year. uh, And if you don't, then you won't go to jail. But if you do act up, we'll, we'll send you to jail. And then before that suspension was up, the real critical part of this case happened where he was in Leeds. Again, another one of these trials was going on. The judge was just about to wrap it up. And Tommy Robinson was filming outside the courtroom. And this is so important. He was filming on his phone, doing a Facebook Live from the courtyard outside the courtroom in Leeds. And all of these, they were Pakistani Muslim men, were going into the courtroom and he's filming them. And the judge, about 70 minutes into this, looks out the window of the courtroom, sees Tommy Robinson filming outside, sends a couple of police to arrest him for breach of peace. I mean, people have seen the sclerotic nature and the the glacial nature of the justice system. This is the most swift case you'll ever find. Tommy Robinson gets arrested, tried, convicted, and sentenced to 13 months behind bars, all in less than five hours. In less than five hours, from the time that the judge saw him outside to the time that he was on his way to jail, not even having a chance to say goodbye to his wife, for an administrative offense. How how is that even an offense if he's outside the courtroom? Well, and this is the thing. The judge said that he was violating what we would call as a publication ban or, or a reporting restriction. But the fact is, those restrictions only apply to details in the courtroom, which he didn't know because he wasn't in the courtroom. So... This judge then wanted to throw the book at him, activated the suspended sentence from Canterbury, and then added a a new sentence on, and Tommy was off to jail. So to bring this up to where we were in August, an appeal judge threw out the ruling and said this was ridiculous, it shouldn't have happened, it shouldn't have happened swiftly, the judge had no basis to do everything day of, to treat the case summarily, they call it. And the judge threw it out and said, we'll retry this. And that is a lengthy story to get to where we were in October when the retrial was set to happen. One of the most senior judges in the UK was set to retry the case, basically to do what should have happened in May. And instead, I went overseas for that case. The judge said, look, there's too much complexity to this. It needs to be referred to the Attorney General, which is supposed to be what happens in contempt of court cases. So the judge actually made the call to not hear the case that day and to let the Attorney General decide whether to pursue charges. So this was for what Tommy Robinson was pushing for. This was the desirable outcome. And it made it a political decision instead of a judicial decision, which normally I wouldn't like except for the fact that the judiciary is at, is making political decisions right. in this case and has been. And I feel, feel if we're going to have a political decision, let's actually get a politician to make it rather than a, a political judge. So it, it was an interesting case, though. But 
but again, the, the whole to-do about this, I found when I went over there, is that the Tommy Robinson case had so little to do with the justice system and, and so much more to do with a lot of the really significant cultural shifts you're seeing in the UK around free speech, around immigration, and around the way the media is, is treating these issues. Now, I found it interesting that you went to the UK to see this. How? What was the arrangements there? Did you just decide to get up and go, or was that part of a, a larger effort? So I was very grateful. I actually got a grant to go, and Ezra Levant uh, of The Rebel, he actually wanted to outnumber the really dishonest journalists that we've seen in the Tommy Robinson case. And I said this to Ezra, and I, and I wanted to make sure it wasn't a deal breaker for him. He's, he's a Tommy Robinson cheerleader. Like, he used to be Tommy Robinson's boss. Uh, they're good friends. I've always been skeptical of, of Tommy, and not of this case, but in general. I'm not sure he should be the standard bearer. And I went over there actually with some questions that I really wanted Tommy to answer. I find that he takes a, a far too broad view of Islam. I find that he has made some decisions that call into question other things, and that doesn't justify what the state has done to him. But I went over there very skeptical, which, which Ezra was actually more appreciative of, because he knew that I would actually go there for the answers instead of keeping that, that bias, if you can call it that, in line, which is what the media has been doing to Just Tommy. Sticking to their narrative. Yes, exactly. And, and again, I got some answers to some questions. I didn't get some answers to others. But I was able to separate any disagreement I have with Tommy about this issue doesn't mean that he's not entitled to due process. And that is a, such a key distinction that the media has lost sight of. The, um, the whole affair with Tommy Robinson, I think, centers around, as you have already pointed out, immigration and the fact that these grooming gangs are predominantly of Pakistani um, origin. And Pakistani, of course, means in this case Muslim. And that is a, uh, a forbidden topic to even talk about in the, uh, in the United Kingdom and the court system. So the question I think would have uh, arises, would Tommy Robinson be uh, the, the notorious character he is today if it was not for the fact that what he's taking on are Pakistani Muslims who in the UK are simply called Asians? That's, I think, the key question here. And look, there was another case not too long ago of a Catholic uh, sex grooming gang in the UK. And when this came to light, the coverage of it was everywhere in the way that it just simply wasn't with uh, the stuff that Tommy Robinson was trying to expose, which, by the way, are not isolated incidents. This is the problem. We're not talking about this one gang in Huddersfield that he was exposing. We're seeing this in Rotherham and Huddersfield and Sweden and Germany. I mean, you're seeing these, mm -hmm. and these are not connected in any sort of institutional organizational way. They're connected in an ideological way. And that's why it's so challenging. So the resistance to covering this case is very much aligned with that identity. And just to give one brief example of this, because there was a reporting restriction on this, the media was not able to cover what Tommy was actually covering. All they were able to cover was Tommy. So people were hearing about this guy without actually hearing the context of what it was that he was actually trying to expose. And when the reporting restriction was lifted, which was uh, earlier in October, because the cases had resulted in convictions and sentences, the media has the first opportunity to write openly about this case ever. The very first opportunity. And every single mainstream media publication of it led with Tommy Robinson almost derailed trial of 
sex gangs. Tommy Robinson almost disrupted trial. Tommy Robinson almost cost taxpayers this much to retry. So even though they can finally have unfettered access to write about this story, they write it about what Tommy Robinson did. And that was the week before I went there. And I'm like, you know what? I don't regret going if this is what they're doing. My name is Dion Muller. I am an ex-police officer, Leicestershire Constabulary. I have just seen um, a video on Twitter um, that shows Tommy Robinson being arrested in Leeds on suspicion of causing a breach of the peace. I don't normally do videos like this. I am absolutely disgusted. I am furious and I just feel like I had to say something. Tommy Robinson was standing in a public place outside a courtroom in Leeds. He was filming a live stream um, regarding the court case of some grooming gangs or a grooming gang um, that was going on in that courtroom today. He wasn't shouting, he wasn't making any sort of fuss, any trouble, but the police arrested him. He wasn't inciting anybody to do anything. I used to think that I missed being a police officer, but I'm absolutely over the moon that I am not in the UK anymore and I'm not a police officer there because I think it's shameful, shameful. I have made a formal complaint to the West Yorkshire Police. I, that's all I have to say. I, I really don't have any more words. I am. I'm, I'm actually quite upset. I, I am. And I don't normally get like this. But this is just... I don't know what else to say. Well, as you may know, on October 23rd, next week that is, Tommy Robinson will be heading back to court for a retrial for contempt. He's already served ten and a half weeks in solitary confinement for contempt of court, but that was thrown out by the Court of Appeal. But instead of letting the man be, they're demanding he be tried again and possibly imprisoned again. Now, when I was in London on September 27th for his last hearing, there were eight mainstream media journalists there, from the BBC, from The Independent, all these first-rate UK newspapers. But what I saw come out the other end was not first-rate. What I saw was insane bias, to the point I'd even say journalistic malpractice. And I thought, what can I do? I mean, I'm going in there and doing my best to report the facts from Tommy's case, and people can judge based on those facts, but it's, it's eight against one. And so we came up with the idea, and Tommy approved it, 
why don't we crowdfund some real reporters to come in to London for the day from Canada, from the United States, from other countries, not only to do proper reporting, but to spread the reporting around the world. Well, we've already had four journalists accept this crowdfunding offer. Candace Malcolm, Tarek Fatah, uh, Andrew Lawton, Cassandra Fairbanks of Washington. And today I'm delighted to introduce to you the fifth journalist who will be coming all the way from Melbourne, Australia, Avi Yamini from Down Under. Avi, what a pleasure to meet you via Skype. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. How did you become interested in the case of Tommy Robinson? Well, I kind of fell into it all because uh, I, I served in the Israeli Defense Forces. Uh, I was a, uh, a marksman or a sharpshooter on, in the Gaza Strip for about uh, a couple of years. Um, when I got back home, I actually opened these gyms called IDF Training and uh, I started commenting on political issues, especially around Israel at the time there was Gaza uh, thing. And from that, I kind of found a voice and I found people like Tommy. And I became a really strong supporter of Tommy for the last few years because I saw Tommy was being consistent. He wasn't a hater. He wasn't a big... And, you know, I come from a very strong, proud Jewish background that I have no time for real haters. I have no time for those real neo-Nazi types. And what I saw with Tommy was that he was he was actually genuine and he really cared about the issues. And I found straight away that the media kept giving this twist to him to give it some sort of flavor of a bigoted person. And when I saw what happened with Tommy um, and the organization that I, I ended up with, uh, the organization that actually supports me, which is the, the Australian Liberty Alliance and their Australian News Network, um, we, they jumped on board and straight away we, 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 when we saw what was happening there, we decided we had to do something about it here as well. Now, Andrew, you were a bit of a fly on the wall when it came to observing the um, attitude of the British press with regards to Tommy and his uh, court case. And I understand that there was a lot of people on the streets in support of Tommy, upwards of a thousand people. Uh, what was um, some of the stuff you overheard, the so-called legacy press in the UK? What was, what was some of the stuff you, you heard from them? So for anyone who's ever been to the UK, we were at the courthouse called the Old Bailey, which is just an absolutely stunning courtroom, one of the oldest in, in the UK, uh, one of the most ornate in Europe. And, and they take security there as kind of everywhere in the UK does. It is a security state, very seriously. So... I arrived very early. I mean, the head of security said we'd like you in by, I think it was 9 o'clock, and the case was going to start at 10, but I didn't want any technicality to result in me not getting into the courtroom. So I said, absolutely, I showed up at 9. And as a result, I was far earlier than I, I needed to be. So I just sat down, and I had my computer out, and I was doing a bit of research and, and writing and, and preparing for what was happening. And the British press was seated behind me, in this little two-row section. The reason why, because some people have challenged, there are some truthers of this around, and the reason why is the second row had uh, desks and the first row didn't. So that was why the second row was was full. But I go in, I sit down in the first row, and I have my computer on my lap, and I'm typing about what's happening. And these people don't know who I am at all. And they start just chatting amongst themselves, very casually, very informally. Most of it was quite innocuous. And 
outside there was a rally which police estimated had at this point about 1500 people so at this point that was the law enforcement estimate 1500 people and tommy had spoken before going in because he thought he was headed right to jail after so he spoke before the event to make sure he'd get a chance to speak to supporters and at called the press the enemy of the people and where have you heard that before (laughs) exactly calls the press the enemy of the people so the reporters were just coming in they were outside and they're mocking and scoffing at that like oh the enemy of the people oh did you know you're the enemy of the people i'm how dare he call it it was actually quite laughable because i'm just rolling my eyes i've heard this sort of you know navel gazing from the press before and they're really really indignant that he dared call them the enemy of the people and then sat down and the two reporters in question were from press association which is it's a British wire service in many respects. So the English version of the Associated Press. And they were discussing the case. And I have the exact quote here that I typed in immediately as it was said. She said, he is in contempt of court. There's not really any doubt. So convicting him before the judge even came in and said, there is doubt. So that is prejudicial. Yes, And then they were talking about Ezra Levant, who had actually just spoken up uh, at the rally outside. And the one gentleman from PA says about Ezra, quote, he needs to be arrested. He's whipped up hate, unquote. And this was not a jovial, jocular thing. He was actually very angry that Ezra had not been arrested. And of course, minutes later, Ezra came into the courtroom because he was covering it as well. And, And the one that really galvanized me, to use that term again, into doing something about it was when they were talking about the crowd size and they acknowledged in this conversation which was about you know 18 inches behind me that the police had said 1500 and the reporter said the following uh, that they would say hundreds so as to quote not give it credit unquote so we have convicting him before the case starts we have calling for one of his supporters to be arrested for the non-crime of hate and then we have manipulating crowd numbers and coverage all in the span of a few minutes seconds after complaining that they were called the enemy of the people well they're not lying when they say hundreds there was 15 1500 <laughs> yes yeah but, but but again i mean in that respect you could say that you know a million people at barack obama's inauguration is thousands it's a thousand thousand it's thousands or something like we're that. using the british term yes. yeah and, but but and again so i i reached out to press association about this i wanted to give them the opportunity to respond they said that it was inaccurate and misheard and the quote they gave was that the press association is held to the the highest standards on all aspects of its journalism by customers across the UK and the world. Fairness and accuracy are the cornerstones of PA reporting. And our coverage of the Tommy Robinson case today is another example of these standards. We decline to comment further on inaccurate and misleading accusations based on fragments of misheard private conversations. So which is it? Is it misheard or is it inaccurate? Did I like is it did it happen or did it not happen? This is an example of what I will now label press takia. <laughs> of course, takia being the uh, Islamic term that it's quite permissible to lie in defense of Islam. Now, apparently, it's permissible for the press to lie in defense of the press. So not only do they lie or mislead about the size of the crowd, they now double down on the lie by lying about the accuracy of uh, your reporting. So This leaves open, like, what is the issue? Is the issue Tommy Robinson? Is the issue what's happening with Islam in Britain? Or is the issue the media? Because what we're talking about right now with regard to the media is, to me, 
my common experience with them since day one, whenever, since I got into public activity. And Robert, you and I know the whole Elif case, for example. And what the London Free Press did was when they made up a complete story about the landlord who knew nothing about what was going on. We've seen it over and over again. I've seen it at, uh, and I'm talking about here in London, Ontario, on this side of the ocean, right? Uh, all candidates debates where I attend, and if you read the papers the next day, you'd swear that person was in another they country. They even crop you out of the photos. They cropped me out of photos when I was the key speaker at a, at a place and, and was garnering like a third of the attention of the room, and I'm just a, another person that happened to be there. And this is common. I, I you know, when they talk about the, the media being the enemy of the people, I think it's even beyond enemy of the people. They've got an agenda that they think is for the people in their minds, right? Well, it, it it goes both ways, though, and and you know, the, the, look, for for example, I worked in a mainstream media environment, mm-hmm. and even though I was a talk radio host, I worked with good, solid people. And my wife is a reporter, an amazing reporter, and she works with people that are good and solid people in in many respects. But you have to look at not just the bent of the coverage, but what is covered and what isn't covered. And and this is often a missing piece of of media bias. So someone could say, you know, we covered what happened at the Tommy Robinson case fairly, which may be true, not in the case of of press association, but okay, if you covered Tommy Robinson more than you covered grooming gangs, that right there is the bias, that you're drawing more attention to the guy who's exposing it and the legal troubles he's injured for it than you are at the absolutely devastating case that is is ruining young lives across Europe and that bias is not just in what's written that that's all another another part of the bias there and another example is Maxime Bernier who I know we talked about on a previous show mm-hmm. who you know does an interview with CBC that was preceded by this you know montage of how he's actually like a Koch brothers puppet they were arguing and it's like well that but there was no factual basis for that and he didn't really have the opportunity to respond to that so this is happening in, in western media at great at great cost to truth. And at the same time, though, I mean, I, I was also very clear that when I was leaving the courtroom to go to the rally, and at this point, I'm very much against what the media has been doing here, I was walking out the courtroom with other people in the media. And as a result, some of the people at the rally thought that I was with the mainstream British press. Uh, one guy uh, called me scum and dumped a bottle of water on my head and on my leather laptop bag and on my equipment thinking I was a BBC reporter. And I almost, you know, stopped and said, you realize I'm not, but then I realized that that defeats the purpose because there's no excuse for that type of conduct. And I was clear to call that out. And by the way, when I did, I was getting a pretty much every single person said, I'm sorry that happened, that shouldn't have happened, we can't do that, we can't stoop to that level. Whereas when things have happened on the other, in the other direction, where like a left winger does something to a right winger, the left will often say, oh, okay, well, yes, but you know, you have to understand what, you know, how they felt and something like that. But, but again, and, and people held that story up as an example of, oh, this is what the media is, is dealing with on a day to day basis. I think that, it, it works both ways. I think people have to challenge the media without assaulting the media. And I think by and large people are. But it is tremendously, to use the word that I hate, but I can't think of a better one right now, it's tremendously problematic for us to have any sense of truth when you have the people that hold the de facto monopoly on communicating the message are so hell-bent on their own ideology. 
I struggled with the decision to even have you on the show because I see what people say about you. And half of it is this guy is gonna save the Western world. And then half of it is he's a bigot, he's a racist, and plenty of other stuff uh, in line with that. So first off, do you get that often? Do you get that people are sometimes afraid to talk to you? Um, yes, and there's a reason for that. <clears throat> you will be targeted, as has anyone else that speaks to me. Oh, great. By a campaign, you will. Uh, and trust me, you will. I I've just been asked, last night it was released that I'm going to be addressing this, the Hindu leadership of the UK. I've been invited to an event to discuss multiculturalism. Um, they've been targeted. They're getting attacked now. Um, I expect that when I turn up, if they're not forced or pressurised into cancelling, which is what's happened with university after university after university, with schools, anyone that asks me to speak, um, even TV shows in the UK, there's a conservative effort to silence what I'm saying and to attack anyone that, that, that gives me a platform to say it. Yeah, well, as I mentioned at the top, that was really what my deciding factor was to talk to you because I'm so sick of everyone being labeled bigot and racist and all that, that if I'm afraid to talk to you, then that, that is almost a bigger problem than bigotry and racism. So that's why we have to do this, I think. Yeah, you're in, you're in a minority there, Dave, so thank you. <laughs> you are. All right, well. Most, most people um, put their reputations or their careers or, or things like that before free speech in the UK. But why, why don't we start with this? Let's just start with the most obvious piece of meat. Are you bigoted against Muslims? Go. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm, I, I try to separate Muslims whenever I, whenever I speak. I try to se separate Muslims from Islam. Um, I have an opinion on Islam in the same way Islam has an opinion on me. Islam is bigoted towards non-Muslims. Um, not every Muslim, of course. Every, every Muslim is not bigoted. Um, if you if you read my book that I'm, I'm some of the best meet people I've met in my life growing up are Muslims um, I don't have a problem with Muslims but I do have a problem with the way Islam is influencing my country I have a problem with the hatred that is incited from it and um and we're, I'm fearful of what the future holds right you're making a distinction between Islam meaning the doctrine the set of ideas that are in books uh, between that and between the people that may or may not uh, be using these ideas. And as you said, you've met plenty of Muslim people that you like a lot, and you're making that distinction. I made that distinction in a similar way to the fact that, look, if, if, if I was a critic of Scientology, I would not be getting called a racist. I would not be getting called any of the things that I am. Um, just because it happens that a majority of, not, of Muslims are not white, I'm beaten down and attacked with this racist stick, which is ridiculous because Islam is an idea. It's yeah. an idea that should be criticized, and it's my God-given right to criticize it. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it's possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with you. Check out patreon.com slash justrightmedia or visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample our archive broadcasts 
featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. We're in studio with Andrew Lawton, who's a fellow with the True North Initiative. Now, on your trip to uh, London, Andrew, you got an opportunity to sit down with Tommy Robinson. Can you tell us how that went? Yeah, so this was really important to me. And, and like I mentioned earlier in the show, I had, I don't want to say misgivings, but I, I had skepticisms about Tommy and, and what he stands for. And I wanted to hear it in his own words. And, and that was so key because I found that the body of research and evidence around Tommy Robinson, I just could not trust. I couldn't rely on. And and I know from my own experience of the way the media has treated me that even if you see a quote from someone that's accurate, it doesn't mean that it accurately depicts what the person said. So I would see a quote of him saying something about Islam, and I'm like, well, I want to hear himself say what he stands for. So it, it was important for me to sit down, and, and just by timing of it, I can only really sit down before the, the court case. So we, we didn't really speak much about the trial at all, because I knew that by the time the interview was released, things would have changed. But spoke about his worldview and, and his approach to this thing and, and his view. And, and one thing that I disagree with him on is that he views Islam as inherently the problem. And anything, anyone who is a moderate Muslim or a peace-loving Muslim, he says is so in spite of Islam, not because of Islam. Whereas I've talked to a number of, of Muslims who say that it's their uh, Muslim faith that allows them to, to stand up for these values and, and that the radicals are the ones bastardizing the faith. Tommy disagrees, and it, it's the Robert Spencer view, the, the Pamela Geller view. But I don't have to agree with him to hear him out. And even if I I find something about what he believes to be wrong, that does not, as I said earlier, take away from his right to due process. And I didn't want to get into a theological debate with him about anything. I I wanted to hear in his own words. So he is not someone I would characterize as an Islamophobe because he does not take his view of Islam and use it to shape or reshape the way he treats Muslims. And I, I think that's key if we are going to view an anti-Islamic bigotry, I think it has to be something that manifests against Muslim people. Sure. And and other things in his past, you know, he, he's, you know, had criminal charges and convictions for mortgage fraud. He went to the U.S. on his on a false passport and stuff like that. And, and these are significant judgment errors. At the end of it, I, I wouldn't say that I became a Tommy Robinson supporter, but I became a lot more aware of, of who he is and, and why he's doing it. And I, and I have, at the very least, I have respect for the cause that he has taken up, especially well, you don't, you because don't, no one else is. You don't have to be a supporter in the sense of supporting everything he thinks, but you have to be a supporter in the sense of owing him the due justice he's due. Absolutely. And, and the whole process and the fact that he is participating in a debate that we all need to hear. For me, I see that as an incredibly valuable service, and I wonder what it is that the media is so terrified of. I don't think it's got too much to do with Tommy himself, but but what he's saying, right, and yes. what, what his message is. Well, and, and I've always been a believer that you have to put the message over the person anyway, because if you invest so much in people, eventually they're going to disappoint you. You have to elevate the ideas. I did two interviews where I was interviewed by two different uh, media outlets in the UK. One was The Sun, and the other was Metro, Metro UK. 
And the Metro reporter came up to me after the Tommy Robinson rally and, and said, oh, yeah, I want to talk to you. Why were you speaking in support of Tommy Robinson? And I said, oh, I wasn't speaking in support of Tommy. I was speaking in support of truth. Well, you were at, you were at the rally, though. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm here covering it. Well, then why did you get up on stage? I said, well, someone handed me a microphone and said, will you tell this story about dishonest media? And I, I said, absolutely. And she said, well, b- b- but how can you support Tommy Robinson? I said, I'm not here to support Tommy. And anyway, so she never ran the story because I didn't give her what she mm-hmm. wanted. And the next day I got an interview with The Sun. They they emailed me and I, I actually spoke to them by phone and they were asking. Their story was actually more about UKIP and Tommy Robinson's connection to the UK Independence Party. And, and they were asking about all of these different things. And I, I was very good at giving a true, honest, clear answer. And again, no story ever came of it. So the media in the UK, I find, are a lot more brazen than they are in North America in that they genuinely will not even cover it if they can't put their slant on it, which I, I found was very interesting. To segue from Tommy Robinson's interview, you also interviewed uh, Andrew Lillico over in the UK, and that was a fascinating interview that I found on your YouTube channel with, of the True North Initiative. Can you tell us how, about Andrew Lillico and what you discovered there? Yeah, so he was the lead economist for the official Leave campaign during the Brexit debate. If it was a political party, I mean, he would have been the guy running the economics platform for Leave, which was, I think, very critical because a lot of people were framing the Brexit decision around immigration solely. And I think that was the Nigel Farage narrative. That was the UKIP narrative. And I think there was a lot to that narrative, by the way. But I also think it was important to focus on the economic side of this thing. And two specific questions. Number one, is it going to be catastrophic for the UK to leave the EU? And number two, is it even going to have an impact at all? And what was interesting is that Andrew Lillico wasn't actually presenting Brexit as something that was going to, you know, solve all of these economic problems. He said, no, I think it's going to be for the most part economically neutral. And I think here's how we do it. If we've decided we're, we're going to leave, this is how we do it. So I wanted to touch base with him first off to put some of those arguments forward that I, I don't feel have been getting a lot of coverage. Uh, because again, the media has been making Brexit about oh, all of these racist backwoods Tommy Robinson fans are, you know, supporting Brexit. But the other side of it was that I, I wanted to get his read on on how it's actually unfolding, because the referendum was very clear and very decisive. And that was, no, we're, we're not staying in the EU. But the discussions led by Prime Minister Theresa May have been so convoluted. They have been taking the UK into this bizarre realm of becoming like a, a pseudo EU member and not really leaving at all. And now you've got activists that are saying we should have another referendum. Can you imagine if we just every time you lost an election said, no, 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 let's vote again. Let's just keep voting until we get the result that we want. And it's so insulting to people that because UK voted for Brexit, they say, oh, well, they didn't understand the question. Which and was this, pretty clear. It was very clear. And, and this is the elite mentality is that they say, okay, well, uh, then we've got to revo because now that now they'll have seen the error of their ways and we've got to go again. So there was a lot happening. And, and even while we were there in October, months after the Brexit vote, people were protesting every single day down by the Palace of Westminster, down by Parliament, protesting every day with their EU flags. I mean, who's paying them to be there? I have no idea. But, but there is still a, a contingent that is not letting this go. 
not everyone's going to be happy with this. The losers have to just deal with it and be a part of the solution. And I wanted to speak with Andrew Lillico, who who is also his day job, the executive director of, of Europe Economics, about how that should happen and what that should look like. And and ultimately, he gave a, a really great response on that, where he said, look, I mean, all that you really need is to have trade deals. You know, you don't need to have an open migration between the UK and Estonia. You don't need to have a shared currency. You don't need to have all of these things. If you want to mitigate the economic benefits, the UK signs a trade deal with the EU and, and the problem is solved. Yeah, free trade solves the problem right there. Yeah, but Theresa May is so short-sighted and I would say sabotaging in many respects the Brexit plan that she hasn't even been proactive at redoing a lot of these trade deals between the UK and countries with whom the EU had trade deals. What I found interesting as well as the the notion of no deal being somehow a negative thing, when the people voted to leave the EU, that was basically them saying that we don't want a deal with the EU in un, and under their terms. So no deal is what was voted for, and yet it's being used today as a pejorative saying, oh, a no deal is unacceptable. Would you agree? Yeah, I would. And and ultimately, I think that no deal would be great because it would prove to the naysayers that the EU is not as essential as it is. And to be honest, I think that's why the idea of no deal terrifies the remainers so much, because they don't want to they don't want people to see how irrelevant the EU was. They don't want to see people on the other side of it saying, oh, this is actually better. We don't mind this. Mm -hmm. So that's why they want to instantly replace it with something that's as close to the EU as possible or as close to membership in the EU as possible because then they get to avoid anyone seeing uh, that, that either the world didn't collapse or that maybe things actually got better. What I found fascinating from Lilico was his astute observation of the affinity that people living in the Kanzuk nations, that is Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the UK, have for each other, that if we meet each other on the street, there's an affinity there because we speak the same language, sometimes watch the same TV shows, understand the same sets of rules when it comes to behavior, have the same sort of judicial system, parliamentary system. So Basically the same a, culture. Basically the same culture. And I bring that up because here we are as Canadians, we have no skin in the game as far as Brexit and the UK politics and all of that, but there is something about the old country that is amorous to people over here in Canada because we share such a great history. So I think it's quite appropriate for us as Canadians to be discussing something that we really can't influence in any way. Well, absolutely. And and the fact of the matter is geography is, is tremendous for trade for practical reasons. And if you can promote that shared cultural identity as part of a, a trade agreement, which the Kanzuk plan does, on some goods, not all, and some services, and on some people, you have a, a great opportunity to replace this EU approach when on the immigration file we're seeing how that has not worked. So I grew, I grew up in a town called Luton. Um, it's uh, one of the most multicultural towns in Europe. When I was born in 1982, there was one mosque. Now there's in excess of 30. We have approximately 50,000 Muslims. We've had just last week four Muslims from my hometown, one which went, my, went to my school, have been charged with terrorism. Another young, another Muslim who is a white convert just again this, this week has been charged with inciting support for ISIS. 
My hometown was the launch pad for the 7-7 attack on London, London's underground. The fertiliser bomb plot. Um, the Stockholm bomber. Some of you may remember the Stockholm bomber. Mm-hmm. He was radicalised in my hometown. He lived doors away from my army. Wow. So, uh, Al Majradeen, Omar, Omar Bakri, Abu Hamza with the hook, their head office and their organisation's base was in my town. So, I, what's going on in that town? What's going on in that town is um, we've had it has been the epicentre and the and the, the home of radical Islam. And they've been allowed, unchallenged by councils or government or police, for 30 years to plan, orchestrate and radicalise an entire community. And we feel, in in my hometown, after September the 11th in America, when I come out to my shops the next week, we had magnificent 19 posters everywhere. We had posters glorifying the 19 suicide bombers. um, In the local college, they celebrated. Every year after that, outside in our town centre there was a celebration parade for the Muslims who, who, who murdered on September 11th that's where I live so I, I've grown up from a very young age and I have I have many of these what we call liberals in the UK they're not really liberals but or, or those on the left who condemn me they shout at me they, they, and they know nothing about the life I've lived nothing at all to the life I've lived they have not seen what we've seen they don't live with the effects and, and when we talk about multiculturalism in the UK, like we, we have our political leaders, David Cameron has come out and said multiculturalism has failed. Angela Merkel said years ago multiculturalism has failed. What they're actually saying, what they're actually saying is Islam's failed. hate long meetings, so I figure out a way to cut down on the give and take. I'll give, you take. I'm not saying there's cause for alarm, but I would like to get a little constructive hysteria going. There's a drop in the ratings. Again. How far? Go ahead, Mary, read them. Uh, let's see, 6 o'clock news. Last week we were a 1.1, 1. 1, and uh. then we plummeted down to a 1.0. Well, what does that mean? An entire family of midgets tuned us out? <laughs> Look, a drop in the ratings may not seem like a big deal to you, but if it continues this way, I could lose my job. Nobody went, oh! <laughs> oh, Mr. Grant. Tell us about the True North Initiative, your your setup and your plans for the future. Absolutely. So it's a startup. It was founded by my friend Candace Malcolm, and she had worked in immigration for the Canadian government in the Stephen Harper era, which I think was probably the best-run immigration uh, approach Canada has ever had in, in recent history because we managed to increase immigration while decreasing all of the issues that people associate with mass migration, and that was by doing it smartly, by prioritizing economic immigration, by having secure borders, and by putting Canadian values front and center. So the True North Initiative was founded really as the the government was changing over to make sure that there was a voice for smart, sound immigration policy in in Canada. And to to really talk about smart immigration, border security, to break through that media narrative that talking about immigration is inherently racist and, and all of that stuff. And it's since broadened a fair bit because there there needs to be because all of these issues are interconnected with one another. And and that's one thing the left has always done very well is weave its narratives together. 
and intersectionality, literally, that's what they call it, is that you, you can't talk about race without talking about feminism, without talking about homophobia, whatever. And I, and I think the right needs to start looking at some of the themes that are connecting our issues a lot more. You can't talk about immigration without talking about the erosion of civil liberties. You can't talk about those without talking about other areas uh, of public policy like free speech. So we immigration is still very much the cornerstone of what we do. Uh, but I came on in, in a very large way to really start uh, pr- providing a message that is very similar to the one you guys are, are promoting on a lot of your shows here to Canadians. And, and unlike most think tanks, we don't rely on the mainstream media to get our message out. And that's the challenge of think tanks like the Fraser Institute, the Cato Institute, is that they send out all these white papers, these releases, and, and hope that the media will pick them up. Whereas we are communicating directly with Canadians. And it's it's a media platform think tank hybrid in, in many respects because we're doing a lot digitally, like with the Tommy Robinson case, for example, like with stuff I'm doing on a regular basis, to try to make sure that we can actually get these values that we're trying to promote directly out to people. And, and it's working. Uh, we're, we're growing in terms of our, our traffic, our reach. We're, we're growing in terms of fundraising, but we're a grassroots effort. We aren't a social, we aren't a, a corporate sponsorship entity. We are, are getting money directly from people to, to do the work we're doing. But uh, it, it also speaks to how Canadians are, are finding there there's a void there. And, and I, just to, for context here, I, I was almost a bit nervous. I'm like, will people not like that I'm going to the UK to do this for what is supposed to be a, a Canada first think tank. And it was quite the opposite because people are, are understanding that we need to look around the world to see what is coming down the pipeline we, for us. We, we learn from everyone else's experience, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And, and, and when it comes to Europe, I mean, Mark Stein has written about this. We're often 10 to 20 years behind them. I think on this issue, it's probably a shorter time frame. And people responded well to that and, and the idea of, of eroding due process. So we're, we're doing a lot. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a work in progress very much because the world that we're talking about is changing so much. So the focus is immigration, or is it wider? With I'd say it's immigration and, and constitutional freedoms. I mean, those are the two cornerstones. And what would be the the, the philosophical axiom there that would be your your view on immigration versus, say, Trudeau's view on immigration? Well, <laughs> although I mean, I know, how much time do we have? Yeah, well, for for starters, I mean, it's not about being anti-immigration. It's well, about it never being, is. It's about being pro-smart immigration, right? And the, the Stephen Harper approach, I think, is a sound one because you can increase immigration numbers while not having the issues that Justin Trudeau is having by increasing immigration numbers. But but I'm also not approaching this from the perspective that the number is all that relevant. I don't think more immigrants should ever be the goal, just like I don't think less immigrants uh, or fewer immigrants should ever be the goal. I think the goal should be a, a society that has economic opportunity, a society that has a, a core value set, and a society, and by that I mean country, that uh, does not have uh, discontent and clashes in it that are, are led from, from different factions. So, so any immigration program needs to fit within those parameters, but it's not a right and it's not a guarantee. And that's the key thing, is that it needs to be done not at the expense of what makes Canada, Canada. A lot of people, you're talking about numbers, but a lot of people don't realize, or perhaps they do, that we are a small nation of 35-ish million people. And if you bring into the country, let's say you bring in um, 35 million Russians, 
within the next few years. We're no longer Canada. We're part of Russia. And, and it's an existential issue, the numbers of people that you bring in. So I wouldn't necessarily dismiss numbers. No, I, it's not that I dismiss numbers. It's, it's that I don't think numbers themselves are the goal. I, anytime someone comes up and says, you know, we want more immigrants or, or we want fewer immigrants, what the numbers actually are is often an indicator of other things that are going on. But I, I think that those three things that I listed are more important than the number. I mean, if there was a way to bring in, let's say, a million people and still have those three things, I'm not concerned with it. I don't think there is. But the number itself, I think, is morally neutral in the same way that diversity is. I, I mean, diver more or less diversity is irrelevant. It's, it's all of these other things that you need to take seriously. So are you acting more as a lobby group or as an information group? I'd say information. Yeah. I mean, right now there's a government that doesn't have a willingness or an interest in hearing sound policy on this issue. So it's incumbent upon us to explain directly and plainly to Canadians so that they can then lobby their representatives. And I think that's key here because Canada is going to have, I think, for the first time, immigration as a ballot issue. And it, it was to some extent in the 2015 election, but not really. But I, I think with what Trudeau has done on the refugee file, on the border crossing file, I think that the 2019 election will have immigration as a priority. And with Maxime Bernier raising the issue, it's impossible to not have that be part of the debate. So I think the time to have a, a group like the True North Initiative championing policies on that file has never been more timely. Well, the more voices, the merrier on a certain issue. You know, back back this summer on July 5th, you appeared uh, in Kitchener at the Laurier Society for Open Inquiry, which was run by um, Lindsay Shepard, and um, which was posted online on our own YouTube channel on August 17th. And you made some fascinating um, comments during that presentation, which anyone can see if they check it out on, on YouTube, and talking about where the right lost the ball in terms of where it should go in the future and, and how um, the right can recapture its influence, because the left seems to have taken over the media entirely and has lost the narrative. But then you said something very fascinating. You said the right made the mistake of ignoring two major cultural battlegrounds, academia and the entertainment media. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah, the, the right historically has had this tendency to view areas that are not aligning with what we want of our society to just keep those areas sectioned off. And that was true. Yeah, they stick with to the economics and the yeah, politics. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and understandably so, because if, if we mm -hmm. see the academic world going down this road of safe spaces and trigger warnings, and, and back in the 80s, by the way, it was easier to say, okay, let's just forget about academia. It, you know, it doesn't really matter. That's crazy. That's kooky. And entertainment, when you have, you know, the Jane Fonda's all of a sudden becoming these spiritual leaders to, uh, to the political left, it's easy to go, all right, okay, yeah, whatever. Don't, don't worry about that. But the right did not understand the influence that both of those bodies had because the right was looking in the here and now and the right in the 80s and this is so key and I don't I didn't have time to get to this in that presentation they had Ronald Reagan the right had Ronald Reagan the right in America said all right we've won 
And they just sat down and Reagan governed and Reagan governed like a conservative. He was a consensus builder, but he was a solid president. But all of these cultural battles were waging over that same eight-year period that we are still paying for 30 years after Reagan left office. And, and that is so key because it's the cultural battles that matter far more than the political battles. Because think of in that time, you had Reagan from 81 to 89, then you had H.W. Bush, and then you had uh, eight years later, George W. Bush. So we've had more uh, Republican leadership since 1981 than we've had Democrat leadership, but American society has gotten further and further to the left in that same time because of the influence of academia and the entertainment world. And the right is only just picking this up within the last five years. And I'd say the last two years with, with any sense of, of of seriousness. I mean, it's interesting. You, you, you just identified a phenomenon that I recognized a while ago. I used to be involved in a lot of ad hoc political groups, London Middlesex Taxpayers Coalition, HALT, Hold All London Taxes. Uh, many, they were all sort of groups on the right. And here in Ontario, at the time when Mike Harris got elected, they all disappeared because they thought they won the war. And this has been a constant problem with the right. Whenever they get a winner in, they all quit and go home and figure the, the, the game's over, we won, we passed go, we collect our 200 and we're done, <laughs> right? When it, this is an eternal battle and the left never ever stops pushing its point of view. The right seems to just sit back and take it easy. What is that about? Do they not recognize that they have the same challenge, eternal, every new generation has to be taught from scratch? Well, one great example of this, and, and just for people to understand where I come from on this, I support legal same-sex marriage. I mean, that's a libertarian issue for me. I mean, my, my, my goal would be to get government out of the marriage industry entirely. But, but as far as if, if government is going to issue marriage, gay marriage, I think, is, is a legal right. And what's interesting about the gay marriage discussion in Canada is that in the 1990s, uh, the Chrétien liberals in Canada voted on gay marriage and voted it down. And a few years later, they voted again and voted it down. And then in 2005, a third time, the same party, different prime minister at the time, but the same party, the same government, uh, very similar makeup of MPs voted to champion gay marriage. And, and that right there in the span of 10 years is the culture war, is that the, the political institution was not leading, it was following. And politicians always follow. Republicans think that politicians lead. Conservatives have historically thought that politicians lead. They are reacting to a cultural trend. And you look at, uh, in, in, and I'm focusing on the U.S. here because that's where the cultural influences are, are coming from. But you, you look at Barack Obama, who in 2008, Captain Progressive, doesn't even come into office supporting gay marriage. Hillary Clinton, same time, did not support gay marriage. In 10 years, we've gone from the Democrats not supporting gay marriage to the Democrats calling everyone a bigot if they don't want a woman with a penis in a change room. You can get whiplash from seeing how quickly that culture shifted there, that cultural needle. And that comes from entertainment, that comes from academia. So when the Republicans were ignoring the, the markedly left-wing shift of academia in the 1980s, well, all of those people who were in school in the 1980s are now 45, 50 years old, and they're all in these positions of leadership with that left-wing academic ideology drilled into them for the last 30 years. Yeah. We've run out of time, Andrew. Can you give our listeners your contact information for the Two North Initiative? 
Yeah, so best way for me is www.andrewlawton.ca. And if you follow me on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Andrew Lawton Media, all of my work and content is posted there for the True North, as well as projects I'm doing for other entities. Thanks for coming by today, Andrew. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. And uh, with initiatives like the True North Initiative and shows like this, we hope we can turn the media from the enemy of the people back to the friend of the people. And that's what we'll continue doing again next week when we invite everyone to join us again then. And we'll continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. I have nothing against minorities, but what happens when there's more of them than there is of us? (laughs) 